Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Kristen Wood is here. Kristen is the CEO of Gristmill Exchange, which is a commercial data marketplace that supports national security. Before that, in two different stints for 20 years, she was an analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency, otherwise known as the CIA. In her uh, two stints there, she went all over the world. She did a lot of analysis and did the president's daily briefing, notably to, to Scooter Libby and to Dick Cheney right around the 9-11 period, which is pretty cool um, as jobs go. So we talked to her about that in the interview. Completely fascinating stuff. Um, I wanted to have her on because I feel like the CIA gets almost by design. Look, it's it, it's a secretive organization, right? Um, I got a buddy in college who decided he wanted to work for the CIA and he went to an interview and maybe he just talked to the guy on the phone. I don't know. And uh, the guy said, the first thing you have to do if you want to work for the CIA is don't tell anybody that you want to work for the CIA. So, you know, it's a, it's a secretive organization. We don't even know how many people work there. Although Kristen says it's smaller than you think, um, you know, close knit community and all that. And I thought about it. I'm like, who are like the famous CIA people really? You know, I mean, you stop and think and I can't really think of any that are like super duper famous. Right. And yet the CIA is in like every movie, you know, all these thrillers and spy things. It's always the CIA did this. The CIA did that. And it's usually sinister. And, you know, that's not how this all works. Like when Donald Trump took over as president, one of the first things he did was go to the headquarters of the CIA and stand in front of that that wall of stars, which represent the people that died in the line of service to the country and made a mockery of the whole thing. Okay. 
So we talk a lot. I talk a lot on the 5.8. We talk a lot about foreign intelligence services, hostile foreign intelligence services. Well, we're trying to combat the hostile foreign intelligence services. And the intelligence services that do that are ours. The CIA is our intelligence service. That's what it is. It does human intelligence for us, for the American people. And it's there to protect us and keep us safe. And I feel like a lot of times we lose sight of that. And uh, so I wanted to have uh, somebody come on and explain what's the CIA, what do they do, what's the mission, what's it like. Um, and this was a fascinating, fascinating conversation. Really, really good. I'm excited to, to share it with you. Um, one thing she said is, you know, it's not like you think there's less spandex. And she said, uh, it's less sexy and more important. And I think those are really important words. So uh, we're going to have Kristen on in a minute. One quick thing up front. Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump have broken up. That happened this week. I wrote under the heading, Fox News repudiates Trump. I wrote, for the last two years, Trump has been big business for Rupert Murdoch, but for the Fox operation to survive after the Donald is gone, it will need to pivot and pivot hard. Fox News, more than anything, gives Donald's supporters hope when Fox turns, that's the ballgame. I wrote this damn thing in the summer of 2018. Alas, it's taken this fucking long. But 90-some-odd-year-old Rupert Murdoch uh, has finally decided enough is enough with this Donald Trump jackass. He's all in on DeSantis, and that's it. So I think that, um, I don't know, I feel like a guy that did this much damage and was this horrible for this length of time and caused this much trauma. But man, the political career ends not with a bang, with a whimper. And the whimper was uh, Trump's pathetic announcement at Mar-a-Lago that he was uh, running for president in 2024. People there reportedly tried to leave the ballroom because Trump was so fucking boring and they could not leave. They, the security there forced them to stay. Rupert Murdoch, though, you know, it took this long. All these people had to die of COVID. Rupert Murdoch was one of the first people on earth to get that goddamn COVID vaccine. You can go Google pictures of it. One of the first people alive to get that damn thing. And his media operation just spewed bullshit about it, allowed people to tell lies about it. Lies and lies and lies. They covered for Trump. They spun for Trump. And now they think finally they've had enough, not because Trump killed a million people, not because he tried to do the insurrection, not because he's a criminal and beholden to God knows how many foreign powers, because he's a loser. That's why. Uh, so Rupert Murdoch has bid Trump adieu. We can hopefully all bid the guy adieu and set our sights on, you know, showing the world how horrible and putrescently disgusting Ron DeSantis is. I don't think that the white boots and the... Um, you know, that weird way that he has is going to carry outside of Florida. I mean, I just, I don't think people are going to buy it. But hey, what do I know? I didn't think people would buy Trump. That happened this week. Obviously, the midterms, we're, we're now, we're going to keep the Senate. We are possibly going to pick a seat up in the Senate. The House, we're not entirely sure yet. It's looking like the Republicans are going to control it by the slimmest of margins. And they're going to have a fight about who the speaker is going to be, because Kevin McCarthy, who is just a little worm that's just disgustingly beholden to Trump, just after the insurrection, went right down to Mar-a-Lago and kissed the ring. I, I have to keep saying that because we cannot forget what a craven, pusillanimous poltroon this guy is. 
just a disgusting, spineless traitor. I mean, he knew in 2015 that Trump was mixed up with the Russians. He knew it. He said it. I think the only people the Russians pay are Rohrabacher and Trump. But, you know, didn't do anything about it this whole time. So uh, I'm not one of these people that's like, it's going to be fun to watch the MAGA eat each other. I'd rather they just go away and let serious people govern the damn country. But, you know, if that's what it's going to take, then that's what it's going to take. In any event, this is the most successful midterm election that the, you know, the part, the sitting party has had since, I think, 1938, 36 or whatever, whatever year it was that that, that was the midterm. So that's a long time ago. And uh, that's on Joe Biden. That's a success for Joe Biden. Not that the press would, you know, ever make, try to spin it that way. So uh, I don't know. You know, we'll see what's going to happen. We'll see what's going to happen with Elon Musk, with Twitter, if it's still going to be around, if he's still going to be around running it by this time next week. Hopefully they can figure something out and get rid of this guy. Because man, what a what a disgrace he is. Um, I, I feel like there's this sports writer in the New York Post called Phil Mushnick. Um, I think he still writes there in these columns. And he was always very grouchy, complaining about this, 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 and this. I feel like this is a very Phil Mushnick style uh, opening monologue where I'm just saying, "Shame on this! Shame on this! Shame on this!" But really though, shame on shame on these people. Um, is all I've got to say, especially Rupert Murdoch, man. All the money that guy has, all the and Elon Musk, too, all the money they have, the the, the reach that they have, the, the platforms that they have, the ability that they have to make the world a better place, and this is what they choose to do with their money. It's really, it just boggles the mind. It really does. Anyway, enough of my prattle. Um, this again, Kristen Wood, super brilliant, fascinating person. Um, Lots of interesting stories to tell. Probably a lot more interesting stories she couldn't tell. But the ones she told were, were pretty great. Um, I'm really grateful to her for coming on and, um, you know, and being so honest and forthcoming about about uh, the experiences and, you know, kind of what it all means and, and explaining to the layman like me how it all uh, ties together. So, again, enough of my prattle. We'll be right back with Kristen Wood. Carrie Lake. Carry Lake, Rattlesnake, Carry Lake. I'm sorry, but Katie Hobbs got more votes than you. Carry Lake, I'm sorry, but you make a better Elvis than our governor. Carry Lake, Carry Lake, Carry Lake. Your ugliness came through the soft, soft lighting. Carrie Lake, you suck like the vacuum you used before Trump came. Carrie Lake, big mistake. There was too much at stake. Kristen Wood, welcome to Prevail. So happy to be here, Greg. Now, right now, you are the CEO of the Gristmill Exchange. I want to know what that is uh, in a minute. And before that, you work for the CIA, which is why I wanted to have you on the show, because I feel like there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, all kinds of stuff about what the CIA is, what it does, where it operates, all this kind of stuff. And I wanted to set the record straight a little bit. Um, and you're the only CIA person I've been able to find because 
everybody else who works with the CIA has vanished off the face of the earth. You can't find them <laughs> at all. It's it's. I'm just kidding. Um, so talk a little bit about your background. How did you how did you get this job? Why did you want it? Where did you start off? Well, so I think um, uh, the CIA is a funny career for someone who grew up in um, the farmlands of uh, the Central Valley in California. Um, I think there were more cows and oranges per capita than people. And, um, you know, we were probably uh, better for it. But um, I went to college in Los Angeles and um, always knew, even in high school, that I wanted to work for the federal government. And I have no idea why. Why why in the world that seemed like a good idea. Um, but it did. And uh, in college, as nearing junior year, my advisor and I were talking and um, he was asking what I wanted to do. And I told him, like, you know, as I said, I really would like to work for the federal government. And he said, well, what about the CIA? And uh, it surprised me a little bit, but he had been an analyst for the CIA in his career prior to joining Occidental College. And he said he would um, put me in connect, uh, connection with the right folks, which he did. And uh, fast forward, uh, well, fast in government terms, 27 months later. Okay. <laughs> I was hired and um, I spent um, more than 20 years in and out um, of CIA and really, really, really uh, felt fortunate and honored to have had the career that I did in the moments that they were and with the people who are just remarkable there. So very happy to be here to talk to you a little bit about reality. Um, just uh, a spoiler alert, it's a lot less sexy than you might think, um, but really, really great people who care deeply about the country, who want to leave it um, a better place for their children and grandchildren when they depart the agency. Before we get started, is it the CIA or just CIA? I want to make sure that I get it right. Is it like the the Eagles or just Eagles? You know, how do you, how do, you do it? Um, I think I've heard both so often. I don't know that I know the proper term of reference. Okay. The good news is you're not wrong either way. Okay, that's um, good. I tend to say the CIA, but, you know. Okay, me too. Because I went to the Grand Canyon over the summer, and I I found out that in the literature, it's just Grand Canyon. They don't put the the. They only do that if you're not there. And then you have the whole like you know that scene in in the the Social Network movie where it's just it's just Facebook. No the no the Facebook just Facebook. Right. Um, okay, so your background though, you're 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 in college. Did you study languages and linguistics and stuff like that? Is is uh, speaking a foreign language seems to me like something that would be necessary to work there? Yay. It really is. It really was then, and it's even more true now. And I think uh, I spoke Russian and okay. took Russian in college. Again, uh, why someone in California thought about that, I don't know. Um, so I had the opportunity to go to Russia during uh, my junior year for spring break. And as part, I was um, a political science, diplomacy, and world affairs major. So it all seemed to make sense. And um, I uh, actually found it wildly depressing. Uh, really, really shook me to see how people lived and suffered in countries such as that. This was um, the late 80s and po abject poverty and people would offer you their last loaf of bread um, and pickled almost anything. And uh, being a 21-ish kind of person who wasn't into pickled anything, <laughs> um, I think most of us lost about 15 pounds in seven days. Wow. Okay. And it's just a really uh, stark contrast between, you know, the life that we had both as, you know, students of privilege that could go to college, um, whether, you know, you're on huge scholarships like I was or elsewhere, and then at college have three meals a day presented to you in, you know, in a buffet line that you could 
you know, are only limited by, you know, your eyes and how much you can fit in your right. stomach. So um, really profoundly affected me in terms of um, how important this took just a new level of understanding for me and how important it really was to try to do the best we could for our country and, you know, folks also around the world. So were you stationed in Russia or were you stationed or I guess Soviet Union at that time? Were you stationed in various places or do, do you go to Washington or Langley and work there and then go abroad occasionally? Like, how did it work for you? I, and if you can't say anything, it's fine. But. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so I spent most of my career as an analyst. So um, generally, although uh, generally in the day, maybe less so true now, um, most of it is domestic. And whether that's at CIA headquarters or other remote buildings that kind of dot the Northeast corridor um, and elsewhere. And then um, I was overseas uh, any number of times for short trips. We call them TDYs or temporary duties. PCSs, permanent change of station, you're going to be somewhere for a year or two or three. And I think it was really an opportunity to visit other cultures in a lot of ways. Um, as far as Russia, Interestingly, um, when I went, by the time I got in, right, 27 months later, we're pretty much close to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And um, I ended up being assigned to Africa. And it was one of my first uh, kind of head scratching moments to say, but wait a minute. I, I, okay, okay. Um, And it was great. It worked out great. Um, So I think uh, there's someone that just said to me this weekend is, you know, flower where you're planted. I think the agency is a great uh, place for that because it's not always what expect what's expected, but it is always interesting. Yeah. Well, there's always a lot of Russian fuckery going on in Africa. I mean, the, you know, Prigozhin and all this sort of stuff. So I don't, I don't think it's that far off base. There's always, you know, threats of communist insurgencies and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, maybe it, maybe it made perfect sense. Um, and when did you leave? When, when did you, how long have you been out? Yeah, so um, I left twice. Um, okay. The first time in 2006, I'd had five or six very high stress, high visibility jobs in a row. And that's just in life, not recommended. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was so burned out. I used to say I was pet- I was ossified. Um, I just, I couldn't do anymore. And um, I'd spent a lot of time away from my family and had some pretty serious health scares. So I decided to do something entirely different and opened a sports nutrition franchise with my personal trainer and uh, who's just a dear friend. And we did that for, you know, most of 10 years and about half of that, I was just doing that. So helping teams and athletes get better, get better nutrition, working with the community. And I always used to say, it's never going to be a bad day because no one's, no one died. No one's running for their life and Congress isn't going to investigate. So (laughs) I left, I was there from 1989 to 2006 and then was gone for about six years and then um, circled back when um, one of the senior leaders there said, hey, you know, do you, what do you think about another run? And um, I had a chance to uh, serve for two and a half more years before um, leaving finally in um, 2015. Okay. Well, right, right before right before Trump, you got out. Okay. It's probably a good, good time. So let's talk about like some basic stuff. So uh, this is just I just very remedial for you, but I want to uh, one of the things I like to do on this podcast is get remedial because I think a lot of people um, have questions about things that they think are dumb questions. They don't want to ask them for fear of appearing stupid, but I'm I'm not afraid to appear stupid. So, OK, first of all, what is the CIA principally and I, how is it different from the other seven, the other 16 agencies? Why are there 16 agencies? Like, where does it fit in the framework of all this stuff? Start with that. 
Sure, absolutely. And I might even start back a little further. Okay. The in in 1947, um, there was the National Security Act, which really um, created the modern institutions that we know now and geared towards World War II. And um, fast forward over time and um, events like 9-11 and others, it's it's morphed into many more agencies. So as you said, 17, I'm not really sure how Space Force fits because, you know, there's an intelligence piece to that too. So seven, let's say 17, but CIA is the the agency tasked with human human um, operations, human human intelligence. So it is the agency that um, has officers who recruit spies to act on behalf of the U.S. government um, in terms of looking for um, information that might be useful to the U.S. government, to find information that's useful to U.S. objectives, and that is one of the major purposes of CIA. Also, it has responsibility for all source analysis. And over time, actually until quite recently, uh, modern era, it was really the preeminent open source or open source and all source analysis um, organization. Uh, the president's daily brief, which I think we in the community consider really one of the most important things we do every day is publish a short four or five, six article document for the president to tell him or her, so, so far only him, um, what is happening in the world that we, the intelligence community, think is most important. In post 9-11, Congress decided that the CIA director had was wearing too many hats because the CIA director was both the director of an, a large organization and oversaw the whole of the intelligence community and um, decided to create uh, the director of national intelligence organization instead. So pulled away those community responsibilities from the CIA director. And that person oversaw the 17 organizations that are a part of the intelligence community. You know, why are there so many? Um, some of them have to do with collection focus. So think um, NSA with signals or um, NGA, National Geospatial Agency with imagery and that kind of sensor data. And then some of it based on um, who they serve. So think Defense Intelligence Agency really serving DOD and its intelligence needs. So um, each has its own purpose and its own primary audience, if you will. And, and in the case of the CIA, I think we've been really privileged to be the most direct link into the National Security Council, um, which informs the president um, on his own staff in the White House, and then the president. That's altered a little bit in the most modern times. So the DNI director um, is the primary intelligence officer at briefings. When those daily presidential daily brief briefings, um, CIA director sometimes comes. Um, the intelligence briefer most often is still from CIA. Uh, for most of the uh, people who receive the book every day, but not always. Who gets to see the book? Does that, do, do everybody in the agency see the book or is it like top secret or who, you know, like an analyst working in, in Langley 
they have sort of a general idea of what's going on or how, how does it work a little? So it is one of the more sensitive documents there is um, in the community. Um, not always documents, sometimes um, in digital form, but um, depends upon the preference of the president. But um, no, people, most people never know what's in the PDB. And okay. Um, if you're a, a, an observer of what's happening in the world, it would be easy to guess that there's probably something about Russia, Ukraine or China, Taiwan or ransomware yeah. or cryptocurrency or, you know, fill in the blank. However, um, it is where sometimes it's an operational update of something very, very sensitive that's happening. Sometimes it's um, the status of covert action. And so, um it is one of those things that's most protected. As a PDB briefer, for example, you get a car and a driver to take you to see your principal. Um, you asked who gets to see it. Um, each administration is a little bit different uh, in terms of who the president says. These are these are my people who have a need to know on these issues, and so the president usually decides who who gets to see that. We as briefers would drive down to wherever that was and um, make our, our presentations. But you know, we always had a, a car and a driver who really was very good at their jobs. And uh, I always used to laugh because, you know, in the event there was some something horrific that happened, a car accident, I was 100% sure the briefcase was going to get back to Langley. <laughs> Once I'm always sure <laughs> that I would be included as part of the package. So, um, but they're there definitely to make sure that the classified information remains protected. The, it, it's, you know, why don't they make the whole plane out of the little black box? Right. It's like that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you've done the, you've done these before given the, the briefing. Yeah. So um, one of my jobs was being a presidential daily brief briefer um, right oh, in the okay. beginning of the Bush administration. So um, national security advisor, Scooter Libby was my primary um, customer and oftentimes um, vice president Cheney. And then uh, post nine 11, the two gentlemen always, almost always took their briefings together because if you remember uh, Vice President Cheney was often in an undisclosed location. So um, we would go to wherever that was and provide him with um, briefings. So I just have to say, like, that is one, from my perspective, one of the coolest jobs I have ever had in that um, it's a privilege to see how people at that level think. And yeah. like them or not politically, in any case, the degree to which they reflect on what they believe is best for the country, it's a privilege to witness thinking. And someone like Vice President Cheney, who's had decades and decades in jobs from Congress to DOD to White House Chief of Staff, et cetera, um, it's such a great learning experience. And uh, also just this awesome sense of responsibility to one, not be an idiot, because really that seems like that's bad. And uh, two, to provide something useful or meaningful to inform choices that are being made by people who are already remarkably well-educated and smart. And um, we were um, the people who presented the informed analysis or operations of the agency. We weren't the experts. So, you know, it was really my job to accurately convey what it is that the um, folks intended and to be able to answer a certain level of questions and then bring others back. And that relationship is really varied depending on which president, um, how much they they regard the PDB. But the President Bush, 43, um, really always stuck by it. Um, one of the funny things that 
happened when they started was he always said, well, we're going to all take our brief together and it's going to be at 730 in the morning. And um, some of us were quite skeptical about the discipline and thought, okay, well, that's going to last for a few weeks. And it lasted throughout the whole of the administration. And even after 9-11, even after many other things happened, it was this rigorous discipline that the administration had that I think was critical to um, their decision making, you know, like like the outcome or not, um, they were able to make sure voices were heard on their team. And um, part of that was through the discipline that uh, Chief of Staff Andy Card and others imposed on on the team. Yeah, I always thought, you know, I mean, I, I didn't vote for them, but the, there's no question in my mind, and I think this is an important distinction to make between the Bush people and the Trump people, that they're operating in the best interest of the country. And Dick Cheney is a smart guy. I mean, there's no there's no two ways about it. He must was he super intimidating. Was he the most intimidating person in the room? Huh. Um, at first, absolutely. Uh, so my first briefing alone to him um, was so. As I said, I was scared of Libby's brief primarily, particularly before 9-11. And it was uh, the 4th of July. And it was at his residence, um, which was on the the Naval Observatory. And this gorgeous, beautiful building. And I come up and the Navy steward opens the door and escorts me into the sunroom. And I'm nervous. I was just so nervous. And <laughs> I mean, like being an idiot is something none of us want. And I think I'm going to get fired before I even get off the sofa. So he comes in and he says, Kristen, how are you? Happy Fourth of July. And I said, thank you, sir. Fantastic to be here. And he says, do you want coffee? And I said, oh, no, thank you so much. Because, well, you just don't like I'm there to work. And he says, no, no, really. And I said, no, it's OK. I said, I, you know, I wouldn't want to spill on the book or anything. And he says, okay, so here's the secret. I have a whole Starbucks barista set up in the basement and I'm going to have a cappuccino. And so I'm going to make up something for you to have if you don't choose for yourself. So, um, and, and I found him to be, I I tell that story because I found him to be really gracious and, um, focused very intently on the substance, but kind. So, um, when I would be briefing him in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, especially in the winter, um, which is not warm um that my california never really got used to that you know i'd walk in and he'd send the secret service would go out to get coffee for him every day and he insisted on me having an order of whatever it was that i wanted and they brought it every day without even asking me and um you know after a briefing would go long he'd pick up his coffee and he'd pick up my coffee and stick them in the microwave to make sure they were hot again and you know i just tell these little stories because um it's so easy to vilify people based upon our our kind of colloquial understanding of them and the public perception of them and or frankly their views being wildly in disagreement with where we are and then um that's just not always true of the human side so um i was there the morning of 911 um at the house and um briefing scooter libby and he and i had been talking about masood um who was a an afghan warlord who um, Al-Qaeda um, murdered. Was it that morning or the day before? It was the day before. Murdered rather spectacularly in a, a way to, um, the Taliban hated him. And we spent a fair amount of time in the briefing trying to understand why they would do that. Why would Al-Qaeda be trying to curry favor with the Taliban now? Because, you know, as you know, in that moment, they told this community, the lights were you know, blinking red. We all knew something was coming 
we didn't know what it was and the amount of stress that was um, with policymakers and with the intelligence community was really high. And so I was driving, um, being driven back to CIA headquarters to ask this question and got to my office. Um, and in um, the seventh floor at CIA headquarters is where all the power is. Okay, that's probably wrong to say now, but it's where the executive leadership is. And so we were on the seventh floor at the time. I think it's changed. And a small closet of an office. So if you think of a small closet, really, really, that's how big it is. Because, okay. you know, it's kind of relative importance on the seventh floor. So I'm sitting in my little closet and um, typing in the results to ask others to say, okay, can you respond to this? When one of the other briefers walked in with the strangest look on his face. And um, he said, Kristen, you've got to come watch TV, which is not something anyone ever says, by the way, at work. Yeah. And I, I just said his name. And I said, I, I'm, I'm busy. Like I don't have time, have time for this. And he said, no, 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 really. It's like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. And something about his tone um, really got me. So we went to watch TV and there was a crowd around it already as the second plane hit yeah. the world trade center. And we all knew exactly what it was. It just in that instant. Um, so you know, I, I tell the story of being a briefer to say it's just this incredible honor. It's a credible privilege. And then post 9-11, the responsibilities, the amount that needed to be done geometrically more and the sense of responsibility, because I think most of us felt very, very personally that we had failed the country. I mean, it's our job to protect our country and we failed and um, decorate it however we want. There's all sorts of reasons for it. There's all sorts of um, things that are put in place to make things work better. In the end of the day, people died on uh, our watch and on the watch of the administration. And so um, their actions subsequently, I think one of the things that it's easy to forget is um, they failed to and this sense of we cannot let it happen again. And we were hearing about uh, weapons of mass destruction attacks. We were hearing about you know possible tactical nuclear weapons and we could believe it because of what had just happened. So um, rambling answer um, to your rather innocent question. That's the kind of answer we like. This is, this is good. <laughs> this is, now I'm like, I just want to hear about this. I don't even care about my questions. Um, so, yeah, I was also on the seventh floor of my office building in, in New York at AP, which the seventh floor also where the where the power structure was, also watching TV. And, you know, as soon as the second plane hits, obviously you're like, oh, yeah, that's not like the John Denver plane. This is really there's no other explanation here. But I think, you know, you're in a position in that job to be able to do something about, you know, you're 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 in a position where you can say, like you said, we can't let this happen again. We have to, you know, do better. Like, I think most Americans felt so paralyzed because there's nothing, what, what can we do? You know, there's nothing to do. So you know, you're, right. you're in a position to be able to do something, which is the silver lining, I guess is what I'm saying. So it, great honor and privilege, right. To help yeah. fight back. And I think, you know, that's where so many people came back to government who'd left. So many people came back to the military who'd left. So many people volunteered to say, what do you need? Um, whether they left the private sector or not. So, no, you're right. It was really one of the most remarkable moments where we as a nation rose up together to yeah. say that is not that is not 
no. So I think being able to be a part of contributing towards how we get through this was absolutely to you say, as you said, a, a, a privilege and it was worth the price, I think for all of us. Um, and as you know, we've lost some people since then, Yeah. Um, which we can talk about a little bit, but um, I think to a human, each of us would have done whatever we could do to um, make sure it never happened again and to um, bring those responsible to justice. This is a good place to take a break because we have to. I have to pause and and, and uh, process the, the the story that that you just told because this is remarkable stuff. We'll be right back with Kristen Wood. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. For ten percent off your first month, go to betterhelp.com/greg. Start living a better life today. You know, it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem solving mode when faced with a challenge in life. And let's face it, right now, there's a lot of challenges, like even in a global sense. We have we have fascists trying to take over the government. We have climate change. Everybody is still reeling from the, the pandemic and the quarantine and all of the, the adverse mental health effects of that. It's hard. Sometimes I, I mean, me, I just sometimes I want to curl up under my desk and, and, and just stay there. But that doesn't really solve anything. We have to find our own solutions. And when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. And a therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals no matter how big or how small. Now, I'm a big believer in therapy. My wife's a therapist. I've been to therapy on and off. And when BetterHelp started sponsoring Prevail Podcasts, uh, I don't know, earlier this year, last year, whenever it was, I took advantage of it. I went to BetterHelp. I used the promo code. I got 10% off and I got hooked up with a really great therapist who absolutely helped me. And I'm delighted that they're back sponsoring the show because I want them to help you. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and it's entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey. Switch therapists at any time. I didn't have to. I love my therapist, but you can switch if you want. It usually takes like 48 hours to get started, which is great because when you're in a crisis, you want to talk to somebody like sooner rather than later, right? It's it's really just a great service. Like I said, I'm delighted. I'm very, very happy that they're back sponsoring the pod. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash Greg today. Get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. Okay, we're back with Kristen Wood. Okay, you mentioned before the break the whole 9-11 situation, and then uh, you said if you want to discuss the people that, that died after. So talk a little bit about that. Where, where, where are you going with that in your in your narrative? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the things about CIA is that I think people don't know is it's really not that big. Compared to DOD, I mean, there's zeros more in terms of the the military and civilian staff at DOD than there are at CIA, and the actual number is classified, so I don't mean to be too cute about it, but it's a really small community, very, very tight-knit, because folks with clearances tend to hang out together because it's just easier, Yeah. and the days are so long. I mean, if we don't have friends at work, it's hard to have friends. So um, it is really a tight-knit community, and so... Um, some of the first teams on the ground in Afghanistan, as well documented, um, were CIA teams, uh, paramilitary teams. And um, Secretary Rumsfeld um, had a giant machine 
to get going. And so if you think about, you know, turning a small boat or turning an aircraft carrier, um, obviously one's going to get there faster, which is what happened in that case. And so CIT teams hit the ground and started building uh, building on relationships, existing relationships with the uh, Northern Alliance and others who opposed Taliban and um, went out on horseback, went in um, with tons of money and um, were there, I think, within 10 days of 9-11, which you know, may not seem remarkable in um, kind of a global scheme of things, but it really, really is remarkable if you think about what had to be done to make that happen. And just remarkable things happened. So they hadn't planned on being horseback traveling the country and not everyone knows how to ride horses these days. Uh, Washington, D.C., you don't see too many. Um, you know, not you know, Central Park, there's a few, but probably yeah. not optimal for the mountains of Afghanistan. So, for example, you had to have a certain kind of saddle, and that's not really in stock at a CIA store. So the list of people, I think, are unsung heroes in a lot of this, in the, the support teams, calling all over the country, to get saddles and finding someplace in Texas that had enough and, you know, flying a jet to go get the saddles and then getting them, you know, out to an airbase nearby where they could be dropped near the teams. And you, you wouldn't think of heroics related to that. Um, but it's true. A funny story before some that aren't so funny. Um, one of my really dear friends was going out to be um, the chief in Tashkent uh, Uzbekistan. Uh, we had dinner, he and his wife and um, my then husband and I on uh, September 6th, uh, 2001. You know, he was talking about it's kind of a quiet place and, you know, really excited to be the boss for the first time. And, you know, we talked about bin Laden. We talked about all this stuff because we all, you know, knew this was coming. And, you know, fast forward, um, that was one of the places that was really um a hub for bringing things in and out of the region. And um, he tells the story of, you know, the ambassador walking in to be supportive, right, to the station. As you know, there's at an embassy, there's the diplomatic presence. So a political section, usually a military section, an economic section, an embassy. Changes different different things, plus and minus, depending on the embassy. And then there's the station, which is where um, the CIA people are. And um the ambassador came to the station and he saw up against the wall hundreds of copier paper boxes. And um, he's just like, I thought we were moving away from paper. Like, what, what is with the copier paper boxes? Because there's, you know, the floor to ceiling down this huge corridor. And my friend says, oh, it's not copier paper. It's money. <laughs> and the ambassador looked at him and laughed. And he said, I'm serious. So, you know, important to know that a million dollars fits in a copy or paper box. Yeah, it does. I, yeah. <laughs> That's the funnier side. Um, so um, we lost, had our first loss of life in Afghanistan from um, someone who'd come in on those teams who was involved in questioning a group of Taliban captured Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters captured um, in a very large complex. And uh, Mike Spann is his name. And uh, he was there with um, someone I will just let, name, name Dave. Um, and Dave spoke six languages, um, including many in the region. And um, there was an uprising, a prison uprising. And um, 
Mike was attacked and killed almost instantly. And Dave fought his way out. And um, the American, not the American, the Red Crescent actually happened to be there at the prison filming. Unrelated to this. But you can see the film of Dave shooting his way out, running for his life. It's, you know, it's available on YouTube. And uh, it's really a profoundly uh, difficult moment for us because that was our first loss of life in really in, in combat in decades. And um, it is the reason that CIA Officers Memorial Foundation was created. Um, there are other events that celebrate it. Um, I actually just met his daughter, um, one of his daughters, uh, two weeks ago. And to hear her um, story of growing up without a dad um, and his, her mom dying of cancer a year and a half later, she's nine. Oh, I mean, God. it's just, you just think about that's the, the uh, human toll. And then, um, you know, when I started in 89, there were four of us uh, who started together and uh, we, uh, not that the agency had a type, but we all were about five, three, five, four, brown hair. It's the eighties, big brown hair. <laughs> Big shoulder pads, white. And um, we had become fast friends. And so fast forward all these years, um, Jennifer Matthews is, um, you know, we grew up together. We, our, our kids grew up. We debated what the gleam was in Dumbledore's eye when he, Harry told him, you know, that Voldemort took his blood, right? So um, Jennifer uh, was a chief of base in coast Afghanistan. Um, when a double agent uh, exploded a suicide vest and killed her and um, several others. Um, I think seven people died that day. Um, a lot of people also injured. And so knowing Jennifer is a dear friend and knowing um, how passionate she was about going after bin Laden, um, she told me about him in the early 90s, this Saudi financier. I couldn't be more less interested because I was looking at Russian mobile missiles. I thought that was way more important. And so uh, it's very personal for me and in, in, um, in many of us, right? So we're a small community. So many of us knew her really well, um, her passion for her country, her passion for her religion. And so um, when I think about this, I think, you know, this is what we set in motion. And Jennifer was one of those people who said we failed. Jennifer um, mentored and trained a generation of women after her, and they talk about the sisterhood um, at CTC of the women targeters who went after bin Laden and others. And the women she trained, um, one of them is uh, famously Maya from Zero Dark Thirty. Um, and she came up to me at Jennifer's funeral and said, I will get him. Don't worry, I will get him. And I, you know, I have goosebumps talking about it. And uh, she did. You know, not, not to say she did it, right? It's a Navy SEAL operation, but she did not ever lose focus on the fact that he, he was going to come to justice. And so as many, many, many people were doing this, but I just remember that really vividly. So I've taken you down a path um, on a, a very specific path, not big picture, but I just think it's important to understand um, what folks are like actually at the CIA. Um, you might ask what is a misnomer or what do people misunderstand? There's a lot less spandex than there is on TV and in the movies. <laughs> uh, people generally don't like fly uh, helicopters over CIA headquarters or anywhere else and drop in anywhere. I've never seen someone drop out of a ceiling and hang six inches from it to type on a computer. Uh, so uh, it's a little bit less sexy and a lot more important. 
That's a good answer. That's a good answer. And thank you for for sharing all of that and for accentuating the human side of this, because I feel like that's something that gets lost in the shuffle because the CIA doesn't really have, you know, more the people that are in there are less famous or well known in the popular culture, I think, than even people at the FBI. And, and, And that's by design. You know, I think a friend of mine in college was like, I think I might be you know, interested in working for the CIA. And he said, the first thing they told him was, don't tell anybody that you're interested in working for the CIA, you know? And uh, (laughs) so, you know, I think it's sort of by design, but because there is that void in the popular culture, it gets filled in with movies and all this other bullshit. And uh, and anytime there's any kind of conspiracy theory at all, it's always like, well, the CIA did that, you know, did they? I mean, come on. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, I want to go back to to a couple of things because you were talking about the Daily Brief and uh, Cheney being in the Daily Brief. Um, did Cheney also bring his son-in-law to the Daily Brief or is that just like a, a Trump thing? No, uh, I, I'm joking. Like the the one of the first things that Trump did as president was go to this the CIA in front of the wall there and 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 make a mockery of the whole thing. So how is that like? How was that perceived there? What did, did you guys sort of know, like, oh shit, we're in trouble here, or did it take time, or uh, what was the general mood? I guess you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. No, thank you, absolutely. So um, I was out um, by then. So yeah. Um, but you know, as I said, it's a tight community. I think watching that just as a former, um, I was outraged, just outraged. I mean, so for us, it's as close as you get to church or synagogue or temple or whatever anyone's tradition is. Um, it's, it's a standing in front of the stars. Um, you know, we all know someone or someone's and, uh, to stand in front of the stars and make it political. It was, uh, awful. And I think for folks who were there, it's very much, it was very challenging because when we serve the president, Yep. Right. Any, any, I mean, we serve the constitution and the president is the elected leader of the country who, you know, is, is representing that for the most part. And you honor that person, regardless of whether you believe in them or not, whether you agree with their policies or not. And um, it's so weird to me that this became so political, um, you know, the CIA being on whomever, whomever side, we're all Democrats, we're all Republicans. It actually depends upon the administration. I think I've served six presidents, um, some for multiple terms, and all of them would say, you know, you're you're supporting my the other side. And we always felt kind of like that was a good sign, because if we were yes men and women, um, they would have thought we're on their side. I mean, for our point, there's no sides. It's right. what are what's what information do we have? What is what do we think is you know, happening here? How do we interpret it? What are the opportunities and risks for the U.S.? And um, we're not always right, but you always play it straight. And so that um, era, uh, I think for the people in on the mission was really, really challenging because I think um, from my observations, um, President Trump took that very personally. Um, That's not to say uh, others didn't. None of the people I've mentioned so far, but sometimes you substitute brief for other people. Got so mad about a piece that had been written, took a coffee cup and flung it into a fireplace and shattered it everywhere. And so, you know, I tried to make light of it and said, okay, I'll take that feedback back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So 
uh, it's not to say other people haven't felt the same, but that this was yet next level. And so I think it was, um, we were very afraid that it would become politicized because it's, it's really important to have a strong U.S. institutions, a strong FBI, a strong CIA, a strong uh, Defense Department, and not in the bully the population or pull one over on the population kind of perspective. But um, there are bad there are bad actors in the world who want us ill, and they're so successful right now. Yeah, seeing the breadth of what's happening against our country and the fact we aren't uh, positioned against it the way that we need to. I think it's in part because um, of the weakness that's been introduced to some of these institutions by attacks on it. So it's not to say people aren't really talented and good and doing the best they can, but the American public is a lot more skeptical and that makes it a lot harder to create momentum for congressional folks to vote for things that need to happen. Um, it's created all sorts of new uncertainty in how our national security establishment works. And uh, it's very dangerous. I mean, when we, you talk about Trump politicizing it. And I think, I mean, that's the right word, but just to be clear to anybody listening, this isn't a Democrat Republican issue. In my view, it's really a, an America versus I'm a selfish asshole view, because I think every other president we've had without exception, you know, whether we, 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 we agree with them or not, isn't in there thinking, how can I make the most money off of it? They're, they're there to run the damn country in the best way that they know how. And I think, you know, Bush and Cheney, did that i they, they made mistakes everybody obama made mistakes everybody makes mistakes but i i never sat back and thought nah you know bush is doing this because he wants to you know uh capitalize on his own investments in the you know i, I never believed that i think that you know he's he's uh, taking the information at his disposal and making the best decision in the interest of the country. And I don't think there was any question that Trump, I don't think Trump ever did that. I think from the, from the beginning, it was just a, how can I get this information and, and, and have it serve me first? And if it happens to serve the, the United States as a whole, okay, fine. But, you know, first and foremost, how can it serve me? I mean, letting his, his son-in-law who is, you know, cavorting with questionable characters in terms of national security, not read the, I, I think, from my understanding, be the primary consumer of the present daily brief for four years is is madness. And I, I assume was interpreted so because everybody in the intelligence community didn't even want the guy to get a security clearance. And then uh, you mentioned the the creation of the new um, the new job, the the uh, director of national intelligence, putting a guy like like a, like a partisan hack, like a Rick Grinnell in that job is terrifying, I think. Um how much like that job, I think, as I understand it, it oversees all of the agencies. But does everything really go into that job? Is he really like Professor Xavier in the X-Men where he can see everything? Or is he really more like just a PR guy for the entire intelligence community? Like uh, how worried were you when Grinnell went in there, I guess, is, is the question. Um, no, thanks for the question. Um, so, you know, I didn't again, was out before by the time the Trump administration came in yeah. and it left me um, without some of the complexities um, that my, you know, fellow colleagues uh, have faced. So um, I think the thing about the, the DNI structure, it was always, I think, designed to be um, providing um, strategic vision, uh, strategic understanding of what the assets of the intelligence community were and to make sure they were communicating with one another when 
operationally or analytically, it made sense. And we weren't uh, spending overspending on redundant capabilities unless they were really, really required. And so um, it it is it is is a challenging job. So I feel for anyone in the job because, uh, as you know, um, if you've gotten risen to be the head of any of these agencies, you're a pretty effective leader. You're pretty certain about you know what needs to happen within your organization, and so to have someone on top of that with a different worldview, um, I think that required a lot of folks to readjust um, in the beginning and, and since then. And so I don't know. It would be really interesting to look at the folks in Congress who voted to create the this organization to see if this is how they envisioned it happening. Um, but I do think from a resource perspective, from a strategic perspective, there are a lot of terrific folks in the uh, DNI who are trying to make sure that um, there's connectivity the way it needs to be, whether that's literal connectivity or financial or, or mission. So um, I I, I kind of feel like it's a job you can't win in. Um, you know, there are yeah. those, right? Um, and I, I think one of the most important things about that job is to have someone who is deeply expert in the community. I actually think of that to be true in most of these high-level executive positions because um, knowing how power really works and how to really get things done is way different sometimes than the wiring diagram. And um, if you don't know that, it's very hard to get things done. Um, so with um, Grinnell in particular, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just not sure that was going to work um, in, the, in the best interest of the country um, because it's really, really hard to do this you know, me coming off the streets to run brain surgery at some major hospital, I would have great intentions. I would have great intentions, but would I be effective? Absolutely not. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of, I think I'll leave the Grinnell thing there. <laughs> um, while he, while he was in that job, he was trolling me on Twitter. So I don't know how busy he was in that. He really, he really did respond to me and, and say, I'm not a Russian asset even though I didn't accuse him of being a Russian asset, which I thought was was weird. Um, so <laughs> I want to go back to something you, you were talking about at the beginning, talking about your job. And the, just so I have a good idea of, of, of the difference between you're, you're an analyst um, and as an analyst, you're looking at the information coming in to help kind of create the, uh, the, the you know, the big pictures and of, of stuff happening. And then there are other people that are in the field that are doing the the uh, I guess the recruiting of the of the assets or the whatever you call them whatever the technical word is overseas. Is there a lot of overlap between those two roles? Um, how does that how does it work? J just so I have a, a, an idea of of the. No, it's a great question, and it's a it's a structural question I missed. So, um, what I think is uh, I'll back up a little bit to say you know the way the CIA is organized, it's in now five directorates. So there's the Directorate of Analysis, right? Pretty easy to figure out what folks okay. there do. Um, the Directorate of Operations, which is where you have um, case officers who recruit spies. Um, that's where covert action. So um, something is being, the president says we need to do something. It gets signed and approved by Congress and those actions take place. Um, there's the Directorate of Science and Technology. So really, really smart people doing remarkable things uh, uh, on, in the technology space. Um, there's the Directorate of Support that makes all of this possible. Um, unsung heroes, uh, I really think, uh, 
anytime um, something great happens, I think those people need to be front in line to get a medal and award because without them, nothing happens. And then um, newly and within the last decade is the Directorate of Digital Innovation. And so I think that's in recognition of the way the internet of things and digital interconnectivity of devices has changed everything. So different from science and technology and really built for where the modern world is. So those five places, you can work in any of them um, or in the um, director's office, uh, probably not the first stop for most of us as we're coming out of college or grad school. <laughs> um, but uh, in recruiting spies, um, that's a case officer. Um, and the case officer is supported by um, lots and lots of folks who make that possible. And um, generally, the career track is very separate from being analysts. I mean, it, our directorates, the cultures are very different. Okay. And the, it was more true in the, the 80s and 90s that you know, uh, analysts were the the deep thinkers on things and we wrote really long papers and, you know, uh, over, over not so short a time, that's really changed to be, that happens, but so much more um, short tactical work needs to be done on a, on a daily basis. So, um, you know, I used to, on the introvert extrovert scale, generally analysts, more introverts, generally case officers, more extroverts. Um, and so it's not always a great fit one way or another. And so generally when you get hired, you can pretty quickly tell if you're in the wrong place. So there, there's there's some movement back and forth in the beginning. It's quite rare, I think, uh, for it to happen at a mid-career point, but it happens. And I think the big, big change was how much overseas military, how much overseas time I mean, this generation of uh, CIA officers has had embedded with the military. And so even as an analyst or an operations officer of any kind, um, or a special activities person who's in a former uh, soft community person who's now at, at CIA, um, so much more time overseas. So the, the lines between those who mostly served overseas used to be analysts didn't. That changed a lot. Um, in all the war zone activity. And then I think there were there were more people who moved over as a result because they love to see what their ops officers, colleagues were doing. Analysts are great targeters. Um, and by targeter, I don't mean, you know, putting a bullseye on someone's head necessarily, um, but helping um, people understand who, you know, if we need to understand what's happening in uh, the Iranian president's office, who's in their network, um, who might travel overseas, who um, might have been educated in the United States. So um, doing that kind of research to tee up for the operations officers who to go after, that that has been one of the bridging jobs between the two. So um, a long answer to your question, but um, I think there are more than 2,000 different job categories at CIA, you know, from dog trainer, because there's a pretty significant population of dogs that are, you know, bomb sniffing dogs and others. I used to say the job I really wanted is there's uh, the maintenance crew, but tons of shrubs and bushes all around and the trees. And they have these massive leaf blowers. And I thought, you know, at the end of the day, I could see my, what I had done. Here's a sense of accomplishment. The shrub <laughs> looks beautiful. You know, the grass is free of leaves. It's cut perfectly. And, um, you know, sometimes you can't see at the end of a day or a week or a month or a year or a career, the impact that you've had on things that are more, uh, less tangible than that shrub at headquarters. Yeah. Um, a tangent on my part, but, um, you know, I, I really just, 
it's it's not a perfect place, um, but people there are so focused on the mission that we invest a lot in there. And I think actually that's, um, it's a really special part of what we do. Um, mission, 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 mission. And uh, it's the reason that in a pretty high divorce rate, you know, in 9-11, um, there were a number of miscarriages because women stayed at work. And, you know, it's it's hard to say, you know, if I go home today, what if that someone doesn't get captured? What if one of my teammates is killed? What if, and those things really happen. And so letting go and going home is really difficult. And so I think culturally, there's been a great recognition of that um, PTSD and the effects of um, all of this war zone service on the population. But it is a really, has really had a profound effect on um, altering CIA. And so now that um, Afghanistan and Iraq are, are in the positions they are, there's so much less of that. So I think it will be um, a really important moment for modern national security um, community, the current demands for it to decide, okay, what does it look like now? Um, thanks for sharing all that. And I want to, you know, I want to say for the record, it's it's obviously super important what, what the CIA does, what you did when you were there, you, you, you say about the leaf blowing and stuff, but I'm sure that you know, having talked to you now for an hour, that uh, there's no question that you made a difference in a positive way. And I think that um, I get it. I get wanting to to serve the country and protect the country. And, and uh, you know, I think it, it's it's wonderful that we have uh, dedicated, patriotic people who are, um, you know, not getting caught up in all the partisan bullshit uh, protecting us. And I think, you know, the CIA for a variety of reasons, mostly because it's a secret agency by design, gets sort of short shrift in the popular culture. Um, but I just want to say, you know, uh, thank you basically for uh, for your service, as they say. And I mean it sincerely. I, I think it, it it's something we and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, frankly, because I don't think it's out there enough what the CIA is what it does, how important it is to what what we're doing, especially now. I mean, you look at what's going on in in uh, the war in Ukraine, um, which you talked about logistics. We see how important logistics are in a war because Putin's logistics blow and he's getting his ass kicked because of it, because of logistics mostly, right? Um, the intelligence that 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 we have about the Russian stuff, I think, is mind blowing. I think that. Um, if you look at the beginning of the operation there, when Biden came out and just announced what Putin was going to do, I think Putin was so confused by that that he's never recovered from it. I think it just it threw him off that we were so deep up in his shit that we knew exactly that we knew exactly what was coming. So, um, you know, this stuff is really, really important. And I don't think people realize that. So I want to end on a, on an up note. You <laughs> Now, we were talking about when we talked before this, the, the show, we were talking about movies um, you know, the CIA is always uh, the, the villain and like every thriller, there's always like, oh, but it's really the CIA did this horrible thing or that horrible thing. Um, and we were talking about you said it's really more comic than anything else because a lot of funny stuff happens. My, one of my favorite movies ever is Burn After Reading, the Coen Brothers movie, which is involves the CIA. And it's just this just madcap situation where it's just a big clusterfuck and nobody's right. And it's, it's just funny. There's no other way to look at it than my God, this is totally funny. So my question for you is, are there any movies out there that really capture what it's like to be there? And if so, which ones? Huh? That's a really good question. So um, easier to start with those that don't. Okay. Um, Zero dark 30 
I hate that movie. And it's so dystopian. The the that and Homeland, the mental illness and the, you know, <laughs> uncertainty of it, it's maddening because um it's both way less sexy than that and way more normal. I mean, your next door neighbor could be a CIA officer, right? And you would never know nor care, but you know, you just care that they show up at the softball game or the baseball game to support, you know, your, your kids. Um, so uh not them. Um favorite um red. Um, Bruce Willis and um, Helen Mirren. There you go. Helen Mirren. Um, she's brilliant as a role of, you know, a, a retired CIA sniper. Um, elegant, by the way. Um, and uh, I love how she plays. Actually, not real. Not any closer to being real. I think a Spy with Melissa McCarthy and uh, is really funny. Uh, and again, not real. So I'm going to have to take that as homework um, because I don't know that I can tell you that there's one that's really accurate. And maybe because it would be too boring. Ooh, that's a good answer. Yeah. There, there are definitely moments of tension. There are a lot of comedic moments, which we could do a whole separate podcast on. Uh, like the time I lo- knocked down the leader of a country because I was running to um, prevent a U.S. diplomat from leaving the uh, palace in a country overseas. And I hit him so hard, I knocked him and his bodyguards over. <laughs> so the only thing I think that saved me is shock and you know, this five foot three, you know, not giant person coming at you. So I uh, remember looking down at the shocked, bright blue eyes and dashing still, because I still have to catch this, you know, U.S. Deputy Undersecretary, blah, blah, blah person uh, before they leave the palace. So um, th- we'll have to do the the funny parts of things. And I will take away his homework. I'll send you a note afterwards, maybe not fit for the podcast, but um, if you're, if your uh, viewers or if your listeners have ideas for things they've seen, I, I love recommendations because um, I haven't always kept up with that. Some of it just is too annoying. <laughs> so yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah. <laughs> You don't want to see the, uh, but you, you mentioned too boring, but you know, John Le Carre, Graham Greene, Ian Fleming all worked in the same, you know, and those novels are all, they're all great. They're all super entertaining. So I, I, I don't know. I think even the subtleties of it and the, the complexities of it, the things that make it ripe for analysis also make it give it literary heft in my view as a novelist, I can say. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. And yeah. I mean, some remarkable remarkable, awe-inspiring, where one person, two people did this thing that you cannot imagine, and um, over and over and over again. Uh, So uh, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek about it being too boring, but, um, you know, there's so many things that, you know, we can't talk about that uh, just blow my mind in terms of how people made magic happen. So um, I just really appreciate that have, having the opportunity to talk about it a little bit. Um, as you can tell, I know that the organization is not perfect. Um, anything made of people uh, has pluses and minuses, but um, never doubt their commitment to the country and to serving the country and um, won't always be an optimal result, right? Um, but we will take it and learn from it. I'm thinking of Iraq WMD, um, other things. So um, knowing that, this is a group of patriots who care deeply about the country and protecting citizens, whether they like the CIA or not, 
um, whether they like the president or not. And that's both citizens and uh, CIA employees. It's not really relevant whether we like the president or not, agree with the president or not. Our job is to serve him or her, hopefully a her someday, one day. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, and to give them the best information possible to make decisions on behalf of the country. So ending on a little bit of a serious note um, on my end, but I really just, Greg, appreciate the opportunity to talk about this a little bit. And um, if any of your viewers or listeners have any questions afterwards that I can be helpful to answer, please just let me know. Oh, okay. Um, now, wait, you're, are you on Twitter? I mean, at least until Elon Musk destroys it. Maybe by the time people listen to this, it won't be there anymore. What's What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Kristen Wood underscore IC. Okay, so it's Kristen I N Wood underscore IC. And Gr- what is Gristmill Exchange? Because I would, it's not, it's not the, is it the sports nutrition company or is it something else? No, no, no. Uh, sports nutrition company was something called Max Muscle Sports Nutrition, a franchise out of California, um, and that was really fun, um, fun, fun, fun. But um, this is Gristmill Exchange, and it gets to what you're talking about, Russia, Ukraine right? Which is the world's changed. And um, there's great intelligence on Twitter. I mean, yep. you can see, um, and Bellingcat has my, um, I'm a huge fan of what they do and open source investigators, um, you know, open source researchers like them, they're doing amazing work, you know, in the wild, as I'd say. Um, so uh, the, the war is, this is one of the ways that's entirely changed how things happen going forward. But Twitter has been, you know, a great space for that, right? Um, yep. So um, Grissom Exchange is a commercial data platform for national security missions. So if you think about the thousands and thousands of companies that have data that might be relevant to national security missions, um, but uh, very difficult to um, find those and to get in, you can't walk, you can't just walk up to CIA and knock on the door and say, I have some data. And so I think we're working to make sure we can provide vetted information um, to these missions where it's not classified, right? It's not, it's, it's out in the open source world. And so, you know, I think like climate change and oil and gas and energy and retail sales and, you know, fill in the blank topic um, to create a place where on one contract, government can have access to data that will serve its missions. And so that's the purpose of Grissomil Exchange. And um, I really think that the we're in a paradigm shift with open source and with the world's data um, led by Internet of Things. And so I will not be surprised at all in the next 10, 15 years if how um, intelligence is um, collected and analyzed and understood and by who it's done, um, by who, who does that work, um, if it's not considerably different than it has been or is even now. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. And a lot, a lot of open source researchers listen to this podcast, by the way. So I think that, uh, you know, I'm a huge it, fan. Yeah. I'm a huge there's, fan. There's some great people work. out there. There's a great people, great people out there do, doing this kind of thing. So, okay. So that's Chris Mill exchange, Kristen Wood. Thanks so much for taking the time. This was so great. So great to talk to you today. Greg, it was really an honor to be here and uh, thanks for inviting me. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fawcett. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. 
your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.